the gospel according to John. So let's turn to John chapter 1 and verse 1 as we begin today. <clears throat> A quick review. We looked at the gospel according to Matthew, written to a Jewish audience to present Jesus as king, king of the Jews. Then we had Mark, written to a Roman audience, a very busy culture, and Mark wrote a very busy gospel. Um, and immediately Jesus did this, and then he did this, and immediately, immediately, immediately throughout the gospel, a very busy gospel that would very much from what I've read, appeal to Roman culture. Um, so very strong message as Jesus is presented the, as the servant who's going to give his life um, for the sins of mankind. Then we have the gospel according to Luke, the very organized, orderly gospel that is written to lay out the life of Christ in chronological order. It presents Jesus as the Son of Man, so we see him as Paul referred to him, the second Adam. Um, and of course, it's the um, genealogy in the Gospel of Luke traces the lion, traces Christ back to Adam. So we see the human side of the Savior. And then we come to the Gospel according to John. <clears throat> he is very specific. Of his for his purpose, which we'll look at in a minute. But as we see the gospel unfold, and I think it's very clear as we look at it, he is showing us the deity of Christ um, throughout this gospel. So we're going to look at um, <coughs> we're going to look at his me overall message here as we look at this, I guess you could say, synopsis or overview of the gospel according to John. I refer to this as a divine biography because we're looking at Christ's deity. Let's see if I can get this clicker to work. It's kind of gone to sleep. Let's try it again. There we go. Okay, so we have four different gospels, right? So why? Because each one is written from a different perspective, for a different people, for a different purpose. Um, and if we keep that in mind, I mean, it was exciting. I was reading some stuff yesterday that was comparing the four Gospels. It was looking at the harmony of the Gospels. But at the same time, it is exciting to look at each individual Gospel by itself seeing what is the message of this specific book, because each one was written at a different time by a different per person to a different audience. So we've looked at all the other Gospels this way. So this morning, we'll look at the perspective, people, and purpose, but they all together, they all fit together to present us a complete picture of Christ. Let me ask a question, though. Do the Gospels give the full story of Jesus? Do they give everything that Jesus did? No, it's not possible. In fact, at the end of the gospel, according to John, he makes that very clear that um, <clears throat> the books, the world cannot even contain the books that would have all the information about Jesus. I was reading one um, Bible teacher yesterday that pointed out he doesn't like to use the word biography in a relationship to the gospels. 
because he said there's a huge chunk of his life that's not mentioned in any of them. And that would be between ages 13 and about age 30, we have nothing. He said a biography would fill in that. And, um, but but that, that, that gap is left there for us. Um, in fact, there have been books written about those years and why those years weren't mentioned. And of course, that was written by, I don't know of a better word than idiots, to say somebody to make up what Jesus was doing during those years. Um, one pastor announced, I remember when I was a teenager, there was a pastor had announced, a lot of preachers were talking about it, a pastor had announced those were the rebellious years of Jesus. And that's why the Bible couldn't talk about him because he was going through his rebellious stage. And so it's okay, it's normal. All teenagers go through a rebellious stage. I got to say, 13 to 30, that is a long, rebellious stage. Um, you know, Franklin Graham may have gone through a long, rebellious stage, okay? I remember his rebellious stage. But, um, but Jesus Christ didn't go through a rebellious stage. If so, go ahead and rip out a bunch of pages in your Bible because they're not true. Um, Jesus is not sinless if he had a rebellious stage. So it's kind of foolish for us to write books and preach sermons and make up stuff about what Jesus was doing in those years. The Bible doesn't tell us. So um, there are some books that um, I think Brother Matt's going to talk about it in his next Sunday school lesson, perhaps. But there are some other books that were written, some gospels so-called that were rejected by the early church as being true about Jesus. And they told some stories of what Jesus did. But if you read some of those, um, I mentioned it last lesson, a paper I had to write on the gospel according to James. It's an obviously fictitious book. Um, I would be, I kept laughing out loud when I was reading the gospel according to James. It was so highly plagiarized. Um, it only takes an amateur like me to find that the thing was plagiarized. I mean, they were making up stuff. It was so obvious. Um, but... <clears throat> the four Gospels that we have in our Bible are the four, the only four, that were readily accepted by the early church. And they were, especially the Gospel of John, universally accepted, meaning all churches, all believers, when it was written, they accepted it as the Scripture. So let's look at this special book this morning. Number one, perspective, who wrote it? Uh, people could sit down and argue about who wrote it because the author does not mention his name because it's not about him. It's about his subject, which is Jesus Christ. But <clears throat> as I was reading yesterday, one, author, one Bible teacher said it this way. He said, if you go by a process of elimination and you see which of the 12 disciples were mentioned by name, you come to eliminate one disciple. And he says, that's the disciple John. Why would John not use his name and instead refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? <clears throat> because he's the one writing the book. Um, anyway, I, I think there's even more, if you read through it honestly, I think there's other passages that make it even stronger and more obvious that John was the author of this Gospel, of course, you've also got to keep in mind that at the time he wrote this, everybody reading it would have known who wrote it. 
So, you know, he didn't have to specify because everybody knows because they just got the mail and they know who it was, you know, who the return address was from was very obvious to his audience of his time. Um, Of course, in Matthew 4.21, he's called the son of Zebedee. He's also the son of Salome, his mother. He was a fisherman, part of the family business. Uh, The disciple James was his brother, James the Great, or James the Elder, as he's often referred to. He was a business partner with Peter, Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. Um, He and Peter were business partners. He and his brother James were referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. He was a fiery man. Um, which is really funny to me because by the time you get to the end of the gospel, you've decided he is this very gentle man who's leaning on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Well, I thought he was fiery. Well, it's funny. He was still fiery, and you, you read the book of Acts, and you see him preaching with power, but <clears throat> you see a man who was fiery, who was angry, who when something didn't go right, he asked Jesus, aren't you going to bring fire down from heaven and burn them up? And he's jumping to, he's jumping to want to burn people up. I remember a time where I was really upset about something and I had the attitude of John and um, James and my dad rebuked me very harshly. And he reminded me about that and that I was acting like them and reminded me of what Jesus said to them. And anyway, my, it only took a few words for my dad to set me straight. But when Jesus is in your life, and when he makes a difference in your heart, he turns you from this fiery guy that just wants to burn everybody up um, to a man, a woman of compassion, of love, of gentleness. And it's only Jesus that can make <clears throat> that kind of a difference. Uh, Luke chapter nine fifty four, we see... Um, some fiery words and attitude of John. Um, He was, as I've already said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was part of this inner circle. I saw somebody a few years ago circulating a paper explaining what a cult looks like. And so they gave this to me, trying to prove to me that I had been raised in a cult um, in our homeschool organization I was in. And so they give me this paper, and I start reading the cult paper, And I felt sick at my stomach. I literally wanted to throw up because as I read the cult paper, it described Jesus and his disciples. And I wanted to punch the guy in the face that gave it to me, acting like John again. Um, It made me sick because I looked at this and one of the things it said was there's always an inner circle. Cult leaders always have two or three people around them that are traveling with them all the time, that are in with on the secret stuff. And I'm like, have you not read your Bible? Jesus had John and Peter, James, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't take all 12. Who did he take? He took these three. There were a number of times that there were only a small inner circle that were with Jesus. Why? They were going to be the next generation of top leaders. And so he kept them close to his side. And they were going to see things like the Mount of Transfiguration plus Peter, which is funny because there's a whole religion based on Peter being the first pope, right? And what is one thing they like to do? Does something supernatural happen at a place? We're going to build a temple here, right? We're going to build a church here. 
Isn't it funny? Peter's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he wants to erect three temples. And what does Jesus do? He uses that to teach Peter, no, we're not doing this. And then people who follow Peter start building temples everywhere. You know, you go to the Holy Land, and here's the temple of the temple of, you know, and there's a church built over each one of these special places. Um, and had we just really paid attention to what Jesus told this inner circle, we'd know that's not, that wasn't Jesus' plan in the beginning for us to idolize these places. John was a disciple that cared for Mary. Some question, why was it that John is not showing up right away, really um, powerful and effective in mission outreach? It was because Jesus gave him from the cross, Jesus gave him a very specific practical assignment, and that was, you take care of my mother. So why is it that John doesn't show up writing and such until later in life? Because he was probably stayed in Jerusalem or wherever Mary was living, probably stayed there caring for her. And after her death, we find him as an old man in Ephesus um, in Asia Minor um, writing the gospel according to John. We find him later at Isle of Patmos um, being exiled according to history. He was um, boiled in oil because um, my dad says he's a hard-boiled preacher um, because they were trying to kill him and um, it didn't work. But these things don't happen to John until later because he had a very practical responsibility to care for Mary. Um, so let's talk about the people. So this is the perspective from John. <clears throat> and he, like I said, he's writing this later in life. The other gospels have been written. He's aware of these gospels according to early church fathers. Um, in fact, there was one I was reading this week, one of the early church fathers, which was a disciple of one of John's disciples. Does that make sense? So he's a grand disciple of John. Um, so he had written um, information about the writing of the Gospel of John, because John's disciple had told him things that John had told him. And anyway, one of those was um, that this was later in life, an older man writing, and that he was aware of the other Gospels. So he's aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His is going to be very different. It is not considered one of the synoptic Gospels, um, because it has a different purpose, a different structure, everything's going to be different. Why? For one thing, he's writing to a different group. A key verse in the gospel of John is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is the, the book being written to? That verse gives it to us. For God so loved the world. This gospel is a, has a very broad audience from the very first. In fact, if you look at John chapter 1, we see the audience mentioned in verse 7, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that how many men? All men through him might believe. Look down at verse 9. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Some would say, oh, he's talking about the Jews here. He came to the Jews. The Jews rejected him. Well, who is he talking about here in the context? 
He's talking about the world. It wasn't just the Jews that rejected him. I mean, the Romans were the ones that put him on the cross. Yes, at the hands of the Jews, they wanted him put on the cross. But his own was his creation. He came and dwelt in his creation, and his creation rejected him. But, verse 12, but as many, as many of who? As many of his creation as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so we have here very clearly who is his audience. John 4, 42. I love this verse. Jesus has dealt with a woman at the well. She's gotten saved. God's done a work in her heart. And after he talks with men of the city, this is their declaration of him. Said unto the woman, now we believe. So men of the city get saved. They say, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of who? The world. So these Samaritan men recognize he's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. John the Baptist introduces him in chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And the world follows throughout the Gospel of John. And so it's very clear as you study it, who his audience is. So it's to all the people of the world. What is the purpose? The purpose is given in John <clears throat> chapter 20. Let's flip back there. When we studied chapter by chapter, we looked at this at the very beginning and kept bringing it up. Let's bring it up again, John 20, 31. But these are written, these what? These signs, the miracles that he wrote about in the gospel, and the Holy Spirit chose eight specific miracles of Christ to highlight because each one of these is going to present a truth about Jesus. And so these are laid out very strategically, very carefully um, in order to present specific teaching of Jesus. Other of <clears throat> the synoptic gospels, they would give miracle after miracle after miracle that Jesus did no explanation, no teaching to them often. They just say, Jesus healed this person, and then he went and healed this person, and then he did this, and then he did that. Not so in John. John tells about the miracle, and then it's going to be followed with teaching. Why? Because each one of these eight miracles is going to present a truth about Jesus. But these, these signs, these miracles that prove he is who he said, and that's what this word sign has to do with. It's something that proves a statement. So Jesus is claiming this. I've chosen these eight miracles as eight signs of proof of who Jesus is, that ye might believe. He says the purpose is faith. I want to produce faith that Jesus is the Christ, the son of, not the son of man. Son of man was what Luke was trying to prove to us. The gospel according to John, he's trying to prove that he is the son of God. So we're going to talk for a minute about what that statement means. But, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So he was seeking to produce faith in the hearts of men and women in the world that we would have faith in Jesus Christ. So first reason here is to produce faith and to present Jesus as the Son of God, or as God in the flesh. 
There are eight I am statements by Jesus, and these are very significant because they're showing that he is the great I am of the Old Testament. He says, let's see, where did I put these? I'm getting out of order now. His I am statements. Uh, He says, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. He says, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8, 9, and 12. He says, I am the door in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Take that back to Psalm 23. The Lord Jehovah is my shepherd. He's showing himself with these I am statements to be Jehovah of the Old Testament. Well, who's Jehovah? Jehovah's not man. Jehovah's God. So in his I am statements, he's showing, I am God. I'm the one you've been looking for. I am in John chapter 11, the resurrection and the light. Um, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. But my favorite of all is in John chapter 8 and verse 58. And I would say this is extremely key to the whole book of John. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I was. Is that what he said? He said, I am. And what's he talking about? Now, it's funny because he mixes a statement that was given to Moses, and he attaches it to Abraham. Ever thought of that? I mean, the I am, that was Moses, right? Moses is at the burning bush, and he says, who do I tell the people that sent me? What do I tell them? And he says, tell them, I am. That's something. Not I was, not I will be, I am. And um, so this is given to Moses, but Jesus takes him back further and uses a statement that he gave Moses. And he says, before Abraham, not before Moses. Yes, that's right. You keep saying amen. Before Abraham was, I am. He's showing, for one thing, he's showing his eternal nature here. I existed before Abraham. So you take your lineage back to Abraham, and you, as Jewish people that he's talking to here, you make a big deal out of Abraham. He said, but before Abraham was, I am. So we see his eternal nature in these I am statements. We see his deity in these statements. Let's look at a few more ways that John shows his deity throughout the book. Number one is the statement we looked at already in John 20 and verse 31, where he says that he was showing Jesus to be the son of God. Now, if you look at John chapter 5 and verse 18, we understand this is a statement of deity. John chapter 5 and verse 18, and if we were all Jews of the time of Jesus, we would understand this without even having to discuss it. But John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The Greek word here um, translated equal is isos, and it means claiming the nature of. So he was claiming the nature of God himself. It can also be, it can also mean not only nature, it can also mean rank or authority. He is claiming the rank, the authority, the nature of God himself. 
The Jews understood this, and so they're very angry. They wanted to kill him because they saw his statement, I am the, the son of God. They said he's claiming deity. That is a reason to kill him. So they felt like they had legal grounds of killing him because he was claiming deity in the statement, the son of God. Secondly, we see his deity in the word <clears throat> that's used at the very beginning here, logos. The word logos identifies his deity. Um, the word logos, as it was used in Greek culture, um, had to do with the divine expression, divine expression. And if you combine Jewish and Greek ideas of wisdom, we understand in this word logos that John is teaching that Jesus is the wisdom of the book of Proverbs all divine wisdom that there could be. So whether it's the Greeks talking about divine wisdom from their gods or the Jews talking about divine wisdom from Jehovah God, either way, that the idea logos is this idea of divine wisdom being expressed. And so when he uses the word logos here, he is used the word word in our King James Bibles and notice it is capitalized um, because it's obvious he's talking about Jesus here. <clears throat> now, understanding this, that it is divine expression, it's divine wisdom being expressed. Um, think about that, and let's read these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, not became God, was God. I got an advertisement this week for a, a new course, an adult college course I could take on how Christ became God. So it's going to give me the history to tell me at what point in history Jesus started getting labeled as God. Well, I can tell you when he got labeled as God. In the beginning. And we can only say that that, is the, when the, that was the beginning of him being labeled God because that's how we rank stuff. I mean, he's been that way since, through all eternity. But you and I are so trapped in time that we refer to eternity past, eternity present, eternity future. When eternity is eternity, there's no past, there's no present, there's no future. It's just, <clears throat> it's like the phrase, I am. It's not past, it's not future, it's not even, Jesus didn't even mean a present. It's just eternally, he is who he is. He is what he is. So in the beginning, in the beginning of time as we know it, was the word. He existed already then. And the word was with God. This is his unity here. And the word was God, showing his deity. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. He was creator. Wait, wait, wait. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God, Elohim. Creator God, Elohim. And it's funny that um, Hebrew word Elohim, if you look at the spelling in Hebrew, the spelling itself of the Hebrew word indicates that the person speaking is actually plural. It's not one, but yet it is one. It's one, but the word is plural. It's not dual. In Hebrew, the letter, uh, a noun can end in singular. If it's a different letter at the end, then it's 
dual meaning two, or it's plural meaning three or more. The name Elohim, im, at the end, indicates that this is a plural person speaking. Normally that would be assigned to a group, but it's not. It is a singular noun that has a plural ending. Why? Because we have in our God, he is a triune God. He is three in one. In the beginning, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says here in John 1 verse 3, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Well, where'd the light come from? Jesus. He said, in him was life. Where did the life of the animals come from? Where did the life of, the, of plant life, where did that come from? Where did the life of man come from? It came from Jesus Christ. What a powerful, powerful truth is being laid out here. And if you keep reading, not only was he life, um, he was light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and we've already read those. Verse 14, and the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. God was made flesh. Wisdom was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So John is telling us, I was an eyewitness. I saw, we, meaning the disciples, we saw. We, uh, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So number one thing that showed his deity is the statement, son of God. Number two is the use of the word logos. Number three is the fact that he is creator. And we've already talked about this. He was the creator of all things. He's the source of life. He's the source of light. All these come from Christ. Number four, he was the true expositor. You want to find a good expository preacher? That would be Jesus. His very nature was expository. What do I mean by that? Look at chapter 1, verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, or he hath, in Greek, exegeted him. Exegesis. What is an exegetical sermon? That's when you get up, you preach a passage of Scripture, as my favorite professor in uh, Bible college would call it, he'd say, you get up and let the verse or the chapter give you the outline of your sermon. And a great man of God, he taught me not go up and look what is my subject for my sermon. What passage of scripture do I preach from today? And then you go into the passage and whatever the passage puts forth, that's what the lesson should be. And um, that is exegetical laying it out, helping uh, someone understand the scriptures. That is this idea of exegesis. Well, do you want to understand God? Do you want to see God? John said, we saw God. Nobody's seen God, but we've seen him. How did we see him? We saw him expressed in his son. Jesus Christ was the interpreter. This word exegesis in Greek is the idea of interpreting sacred things. 
So someone who is going to show sacred, divine things and help us understand them. So if you want to see God, John said, we have seen him. We saw Jesus. He is the express image, um, Hebrews says. The express image. Jesus, you want to see God, you want to know what God is like, study Jesus. He was the true expositor. Um, let's go on for time's sake. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 48 through 49, we see number five, a fifth thing, that in a fifth way that Jesus' Jesus's, uh, divinity is shown in the gospel of John is in John 1, 48. Look at the story here as Jesus deals with Philip. Um, in chapter in verse 48, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, but sorry, this is Nathanael, not Philip. Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. I used to wonder what what um, Nathanael was doing under the fig tree. Whatever it was, this got his attention. Jesus was showing himself to be Jehovah Elroy, the God who sees. So when you were there and you didn't think I was present, I saw you. What a powerful, powerful truth. This changed Jonathan's heart when he was a little boy and first diagnosed with diabetes and was having a really hard time with it. I read this scripture to him in the hospital, and I talked about the fact that what he's going through, Jesus sees. And he went to sleep that night with that thought. He wouldn't talk to doctors, wouldn't talk to nurses. He was very, um, very, how do you say that? Yeah, just very bottled up, very inward, not communicating. Um, and after he went through this that night, and I read the scripture to him and explained it, that Jesus sees him, he sat there in his bed and he started crying. Next morning, he pops up out of bed. He's talking to the doctors. He's talking to the nurses. He's wanting to give himself shots. He's wanting to check his own blood sugar. Completely different kid. What changed him? He said, oh, God sees me. He knows what's going on. It's okay. It's amazing. A little kid. I mean, an adult, we might have to struggle through that process. A little kid goes, oh, okay, God sees me. Okay. And he was able to just accept it. And this idea that he is Jehovah Elroy makes a huge difference to Nathaniel. And what does Nathaniel say? Nathaniel answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. He recognizes immediately his deity. Thou art the king of Israel. What a powerful, powerful statement. Number six is what we've already covered. I got out of order there, and that was the I am the fact that Jesus was the I am, he makes these eight I am statements. Eight seems to be an important number in the gospel of John. He gives us eight signs, eight miracles. He gives us eight I am statements of Jesus. And then number seven, and we'll end with this, <clears throat> number seven is the fact that he is claimed to be God in the gospel. Where do we see that? John 1, 1. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, read it with me, was God. We're looking past tense, we're looking back at creation, and we go, well, who was the Logos? He was God. Not he will become God, but he was. 
when you go back to creation and you look at the story of creation, in the beginning, Elohim, he's saying, that was talking about Jesus. Yes, that was talking about the Father. Yes, that was talking about the Son. Um, and sometimes people get concerned and confused when in the Gospel of John, um, it will mention Jesus and then God in the same verse as though they're completely different things. But um, if you look at those in the context, when the word God is used, it's talking about the Father, God the Father. So it's not denying um, that Jesus was God by calling him Jesus and calling the Father God. Um, Jesus kept making a statement throughout the Gospel of John, um, I and the Father are one. You see me, you've seen the Father. And it would be just the same. I mean, I'm not sure we could see the Father with our physical eyes, but if we could and we saw the Father, we'd be seeing Jesus. That's why now you and I that have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we know the Spirit, we know Jesus. Why? Because they are one. There is a perfect unity there. It's no different than me being a body, soul, and spirit. God made us in his image. Um, there are three parts to our being, the scripture says. And so as we look at that, we realize, oh, wait, me, body, soul, spirit, that's not three separate people. It was awesome to be able to explain to my kids when we stood in my grandmother's casket and the kids are crying. It was their first real loss that they were experiencing. And to be able to say, oh, that's just, that's just her body. The real her is with Jesus. The real her is with Jesus. That, that led to some really fun stories and conversations with our four-year-old especially. Um, but getting that concept that there are more, than, more to us than just our bodies. There is more to God than just the Father. There is the Son. There is the Spirit. What a powerful thing. Look at John chapter 20. So at the beginning of the gospel according to John, we have Jesus presented as God at creation. Come to the end of the book, the last chapter before the post, um, postscript, which chapter 21 is, that's not saying it's any less significant than everything else, but he closes off his main message at uh, chapter 20 and verse 31. Right before he closes out, Thomas's great confession, verse 28 of chapter 20. What does Thomas say? And Thomas answering said unto him, my Lord and my God. If Jesus was not divine, he would have corrected him and said, no, I'm not your God. The Father is your God. Jesus accepted the worship. So as we see all of these confessions that build, Peter confessed, you are um, how did Peter say it? There, there's no one else to go to. I'm going to follow you. Um, Martha makes this great confession of Jesus, who he is. That's why our, our second daughter is named Martha. Martha's great faith in the gospel of John. Um, but then you come to the last confession. And what's the last confession? My Lord and my God. And then, of course, in 1 John, if you want to go further, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, um, there is an epistle um, that very clearly states Jesus is God. And so we have here a divine biography. You want to find the biography of God, the gospel according to John. What a powerful, powerful book. So it is a topical, you could say, um, it's a topical 
gospel because he had a very clear point. He was trying to make a clear lesson he's trying to teach. And so we have here in the gospel of John a picture of Jesus as God. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that your scriptures give us so much clarity that if we'll get in, if we'll dig, if we'll study, Lord, that we find such great truth. We thank you for these men that you have used, that your Holy Spirit has spoken through in the past. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be true to your word, true to the truths that are here. And I know it is a popular thing right now for um, to question and to doubt and to reject the deity of Christ. Lord, help us to be truly biblical and truly see Christ, your son, as who he is. Lord, of divine nature, God come in the flesh to save us. And Lord, I just thank you so much that um, we have such a great, such a powerful God that is so hard to wrap our minds around, so hard to understand. And Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that reflects your nature and your character and that like you changed the heart and the actions and the words of the Apostle John, Lord, that you would change us, that you would change our hearts and make a visible difference in our lives to those around us so that they can see you more clearly in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.